This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Hello, friends. John 3.16 is perhaps the best known and yet least understood scripture in the United States. Today, we'll listen to a message that I shared with an American church on this very topic. What does John 3.16 really mean? I dare say it does not mean what most people think it means. It's familiar to all of us, perhaps too familiar. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Well, for me, a few questions arise. Why does this begin with the word for? And why is the word so where it is in the sentence? Why isn't this sentence written, God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only Son? Or perhaps why isn't it written, God loved the world so very much, and therefore he gave his one and only Son? Now, these are common understandings of the meaning of John 3.16, but they are not accurate, and this may be a surprise to some. So, I hope what I share here will help folks get a better understanding of the meaning of John 3.16, and through that meaning, have a better understanding of the character of God and how he relates to you and me. The subject of the sermon today is John 3.16, which is what I think may be one of the most misunderstood scriptures in the Bible, which is quite a statement to say because everybody has it memorized. But I think it is very often misunderstood, and I can say that of myself. I understood it in a very narrow way, and yet it's much richer and deeper than many people know it to be. One of the reasons that I can say that it's misunderstood is that it's often taken out of context. For instance, we were talking today in Sunday school, somebody was talking about a guy in a big rainbow wig who would hold up a sign at golf matches, and you'll also see somebody like that at basketball games. John 3.16 just holds up the scripture reference. As a matter of fact, at the Methodist church down the street, there's the reference there, and it's chopped quite a bit. It says, for God so loved the world, John 3.16. That's about all we ever really see. Many of us have it memorized. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. My seven-year-old daughter is learning a scripture memorization song, and she's learning just that verse. And yet we very, very, very rarely look at the context of John 3.16, even though it's around a lot in the culture and is familiar not only to believers but to unbelievers. So first off, the context is John chapter 3. That's as broad a context as I'll start with now. We could draw a much bigger context, even the book of John. However, in John chapter 3, what's recorded there is a conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus. Nicodemus is called a teacher of the law. He's a ruler of the Jews. He's an influential man. He's one of the Pharisees. And he comes to meet Jesus. However, he comes at night because he's a little bit concerned about what people are going to think of this great, wise ruler of the Jews who is coming to meet a 30-year-old carpenter who has been exhibiting special powers and saying some extraordinary things. 
So Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the evening and they speak. This is the context. It's a conversation that we are privileged to overhear. It's a private conversation. We see Nicodemus a couple more times in the scriptures. John mentions him two more times in his gospel. One is in John chapter 7. The Pharisees have met together and they're actually complaining to some guards. Why haven't you brought Jesus to us so we can have our way with Jesus? And, and Nicodemus defends Jesus in a way, saying, how can we bring a charge against this man? We have to have witnesses and things like that. So in that case, Nicodemus is in that context sort of defending Jesus. The next time we see Nicodemus is in chapter 19 when he and Joseph of Arimathea are the two men that take the body of Jesus and bury it. So this is where we see Nicodemus. So he clearly has an interest in the teachings of Jesus. Uh, He wants to know more. He comes to Jesus and he wants to understand more. He asks Jesus quite a few questions. It's in this conversation, as a matter of fact, when uh, Jesus introduces to all of the world the, the phrase to be born again, which is so common now, 2,000 years later. It's in this conversation with Nicodemus that Jesus says you have to be born again. And Nicodemus says, well, how, how can you do that? And Jesus says, you're a, you're a leader of the Jews and yet you don't understand these things? It's really a remarkable conversation for this unschooled 30-year-old carpenter from Galilee to be speaking to one of the great leaders of the Jewish nation, one of the teachers of the law, explaining God's ways to him. This is the context for John 3.16. So uh, with that context in mind, let's look at John 3.16. And we'll start with the word for. You can't get very far into John 3.16 without having to stop. Because the word for is a connective word. I had never really thought about it until I started doing a deeper study here. It's interesting, isn't it, that when we quote John 3.16, we begin with, For God so loved the world. Uh, Why not start it, God so loved the world that he gave his only son? So why start it with the word for? This word for uh, can also, in his other places, it can be used as therefore or thus or indeed. It's a connective word that ties us with something that went before that. Perhaps you've heard it said in the Bible, when you come to the word therefore, you have to ask the question, what is it there for? And you have to look back and see. So let's look immediately preceding John 3.16, which we've just had read, but we'll look at it again. Remember, this is Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Therefore, God so loved the world. Okay, that's what the four is connecting to. This event that happened in the life of the nation of Israel that would have been very familiar to Nicodemus and is perhaps familiar to us here, but not fully. So I'd like to go back now to Numbers 21 and look at this actual event that Jesus is referring to when he talks to Nicodemus because it's actually fundamental to the understanding of John 3.16. In Numbers 21, the nation of Israel is in the desert and they've actually just had a a success of sorts. 
and yet they begin to grumble. They begin to complain. Why are we here? God led us out here to starve. They began complaining against God. So let's look in in Numbers 21. I'll just read it to you, uh, starting in verse 4. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. In the last half of verse 4. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses. And they said, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the desert? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll stop there for just a second. Manna, you remember that they were given manna from heaven. It came and fell every morning. It was just enough to feed them for that day. And, the, and then before the Sabbath, twice as much fell as they needed so that they'd have enough. They wouldn't have to go gathering food on the Sabbath day. Mana, the Hebrew word mana means, what is it? Isn't that interesting? So this stuff falls out of heaven and they'll go, mana, what is it? And that's God's provision for them is this, this what is it that feeds them, that they would gather up. And now they're complaining about the way God has chosen to provide for them. Now it says, we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them and they bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and they said, oh, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes from us. So Moses prayed for the people. All right, that was a quick turnaround, wasn't it? Things get a little bit hard. And now they're saying, oh, oh, you know, they're admitting they're wrong and they're asking for relief. In verse eight, the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. And so Moses made a bronze snake and he put it up on a pole. And then anyone who was bitten by a snake looked at the bronze snake and he lived. So this is what Jesus is referring to in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Just as that snake was lifted up on a pole, so also the Son of Man would be lifted up. That's the context for John 3.16. There's a couple things I want to mention here in numbers uh, that are very helpful in understanding John 3.16 and actually very applicable to our lives today. First of all is that the, the Israelites asked for relief. They asked that the snakes be taken away and God did not take away the snakes. They wanted relief from the poisonous bites. And the way that they could imagine that happening is that the snakes would disappear. God's provision was a provision that demanded faith. God did not take away the snakes, and yet he provided a way for them to exercise faith in him and in his power to be saved. It's interesting, in in the scriptures it says, anyone who was bit and then looked at the snake, they lived. So the people were snake bit. They were praying to stop being snake bit, and God's way was, to give them an opportunity to draw close to him by faith, to put their faith in him. This is the fundamental understanding of the character of God. He is a God of relationship. He is not a God who says, okay, I'll make that better and then I'll back off. He, he's always wanting from, uh, from creation. He walked in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. He walked with his people. He's always calling us to faith that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. 
God's way is always one of faith and relationship. So God made a way for the people to put their faith in him and be saved. He allows problems so that we'll turn to him. This is all through the New Testament as well. James talks about it. The book of Hebrews talks about it. Paul, of course, talks about it. Jesus talks about it. That the way of growing close to God is by bearing up under and through the hardships that we face. He allows them to happen because that is the opportunity for us to turn to him in faith. So this is the scripture that Jesus is referring to in John 3.16. This is the four that begins that verse. So let's go back to John 3.16 now and move on. For God so loved... Well, now let's stop there. The word so is quite misunderstood. Isn't that interesting? Such a simple word. And yet it doesn't mean what we think it means. Very often in my mind, before I started this study, and and many people I imagine this is true of, you want to put another word after the word so. God loved the world so much that he gave his son. As a matter of fact, and I looked this up, The Amplified Bible even has this. For God so greatly loved and dearly prized the world that he gave up his only begotten son. We might also add syllables or seconds to the word. For God so loved the world. And it becomes this emotional, you know, it's like like we would say, I love you so much. But you still have to have a word after it. But it's not there. And actually in the Greek, this word so is the first word of that sentence. John 3.16. Isn't that interesting? The word so is the first word in the sentence. And my understanding, I'm not a Greek scholar, but my understanding is that often the first word of a sentence is there for emphasis. And so uh, this small word that we kind of go by quickly is actually emphasized in the Greek. So what does it mean? Well, let's look back. We see the same word in John 3:14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. We use this in English occasionally. The idea that comes to my mind is when you're trying to loosen a nut or something, you say, you've got to hold your mouth just so. That's that word, so. You've got to do it just so. In the Greek, it's an adverb. And it translates in this way or thus or even so or in such a manner, in such a way, in like manner. That's what this word so means in John 3.16. So now we come to the title of the sermon. The word for can be used, you could also say indeed. And the word so you could say in the same way. So John 3.16 could be. Indeed, in the same way, God loved the world. So now we're tied in directly with Numbers 21, John uh, 3, 14 and 15. That just as God showed his love for the nation of Israel by giving them a way out of that poisonous situation, in the same way, God loves the world And he gives us 
Jesus as a way out. That the Israelites needed to look up to this bronze serpent, and we need to look up to Jesus. In Numbers, God loved the nation of Israel, and in John, he loves the entire world. In Numbers, he provides this image of a snake, and in John, he provides Jesus himself lifted up. And in Numbers, he gives physical life, and in John 3.16 and following, he gives eternal life. That's what John 3.16 means. In the same way, God showed his love. And there's a few things that come from this that I think are pretty significant. There is no allowance based on this for the argument that the Old Testament God is somehow different from the New Testament God. That's an argument that we find in churches. It's an argument that's found even among non-believers who are trying to refute the truth of the gospel or the Bible. That somehow the God of the Old Testament is this God who is more of the Roman or Greek God sitting up high on the mountain, casting down thunderbolts down on these uh, unsuspecting people below. That image of God in the Old Testament is not true because right here in John 3.16, we see that God loved, dearly loved the nation of Israel in the same way that Jesus loves us. Isn't that something? There's no room for that argument. Uh, What Jesus is saying, what the scripture here is saying, is that this is the one and same God showing the same love in very, very similar ways. I do want to talk about the word love a little bit, uh, which is uh, pretty important. This culture and much of Western culture, and I can't speak about other cultures because I really don't have that experience, but the word love is used to describe primarily things that are emotionally pleasing to us, the pop songs or the movies that love is, is this attraction that we have. It's an emotional state of, of being appealed to and pleased by something or someone. And yet in the scriptures, agape love is a love of the will. Jesus said there's no greater love than you lay down your life for your friends. Agape love is a love of choosing another person's best above my own concerns. That's what love is. It's a, it's a matter of the will. It's not just a hallmark card, kind of mushy, makes me feel good thing. It's an active choice of the will to lay down life for the betterment of another person. So when we see in John 3.16 that God, in this way, God loved the world, it's not saying that God had sort of squishy feelings for us. It's saying that he saw a poisoned people and he made a way through Christ, a selfless way that we would be saved. And it's a matter of the will. It's a matter of choosing. As an aside, I'll say, because agape love, the love that we are to walk in, is a matter of the will, it can be commanded. That helps me understand why I often would stiffen against the commandments in the Bible that we are to love one another, because I couldn't imagine how can you command a person to feel a certain way. But that's because I had confused love with feelings. Agape love is not about feelings. It's about choosing. And therefore, God can command it. 
And therefore, we can be obedient in it or not. Very often, emotions are involved, but down at the base, it's not. It's about selflessness. I'd also like to talk about the world a little bit because I just mentioned this hallmark kind of feeling, hallmark card kind of feeling that God so loved the world that somehow there's an image of the world almost like a, um, like a big teddy bear that God just wants to hug, kind of. <laughs> he just loves the world so much that he gave Jesus. And yet in the scriptures, the world is almost always used, that term the world, in the negative context. That the world and its passions, they're, they're passing away. The world is a temptation towards sin. The world is a corrupting influence. In the scripture, the world is not spoken of in a positive light, particularly in the New Testament. And so to say that God so loved the world, it's exactly to say that while we were yet sinners, he made a way for us to be saved. He sees a corrupt uh, world, and he loves it so much that he makes a way out. Okay, now this understanding then opens the door to what follows John 3.16. So we'll look at that. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so in the same way the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Indeed, in the same way, God loved the world and he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Now it begins to make perfect sense to me. Before, I thought it was a little bit unfair of God to say, anybody who believes in Jesus is saved. He didn't come to condemn. He came to save. But if you don't believe, you're condemned already. Now I understand. You're snake bit. You're poisoned. That's what John 3.16 is saying. Whether Jesus comes or doesn't come, or whether the snake is lifted up or not, You've been poisoned. You're on the path of death. That's what John 3.16 is saying. If we don't believe in Jesus, we're condemned already to perishing because the poison has already been inflicted. It's already in the bloodstream. That working out of death, it's happening. That's a fundamental understanding of John 3.16. An old friend of mine from high school who I reconnected with on Facebook who is an atheist. Uh, well, I don't know if I can say he's an atheist, but he's certainly a non-Christian. He mocks Christianity and recently wrote on Facebook that he was tired of people telling him that God loves him. And I can understand why. I think that he's not understanding. All he hears is John 3.16 and perhaps just the first part of John 3.16. God loves the world. God loves you. But he doesn't understand that he is poisoned. My friend, my dear friend, doesn't understand that he's living in a state of perishing. In the Greek, this word perishing refers to something that is no longer fit for the purpose for which it was created. And that's what happens to human beings. We get poisoned by sin and by corruption, 
and we're no longer fit for what we were created for. And the, the scripture talks about people being thrown into the outer darkness, just like we throw away things that are no longer useful. We're created to love God and abide in him. We're created to love other people. We're created to live spiritual lives. And yet, oh, we're snake bit. We're a snake bit people. Having lived outside of the American culture for 15 years, it now gives me um, a, an interesting and surprising and unexpected perspective when I am in it again. Uh, I've been here for about two months on this trip. It's a longer stay than often in the past, and I'm seeing the American culture perhaps in a way that many of you would agree with, but I, perhaps I see it a little differently. Everybody, this is, this is a poisoned culture we live in, in America. It really is poison. I have a seven-year-old daughter adopted. Uh, she's a, a Russian orphan. Her first three years of life were in a pretty hard situation, and I want to protect her. I really want to protect her innocence. And, you know, I can't watch Jeopardy without having to shield my seven-year-old daughter. The, the TV show is great, but the advertisements are filthy. In Jeopardy, 7.40 in the evening. They're advertising these new TV shows that are coming on or an R-rated movie. There's murder. There's, uh, I mean, I don't want to say here the things that are mentioned just in the advertising. You know, just in that, that advertising then, and there's so much more. It really is a poison culture. It corrupts. And people in America and all over the world pay billions or trillions of dollars to be poisoned. That's one of the amazing things about this, the whole system here, is that people spend so much money to be entertained, and yet the people that generate the entertainment are just feeding this worldly, godless poison in, into the culture. When I got over to Russia, one of the first things that struck me is how the Russians saw America. Because what the Russians saw in America is what America exports, which is uh, MTV and R-rated movies, violent video games. And they'll say, boy, if that's a Christian nation, we don't want to have that kind of Christianity over here. And we have to really be cautious, we as followers of Jesus. We're in that same world. The snakes are all around. They're biting. And we have to look to Jesus. We have to look to him. Because that is the only safe place. There is no other safe place but to look to him and live. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the depth of the truth in your word. And Father, I thank you that you have indeed, you've made a way out because you love us. You have given us a way to escape the poison and the corruption that is in this world. God, help us not to be like the Israelites that complain, but help us to be people of faith who choose to walk with you. Lord, help us to lay down our concerns, our self-concern, and love you more than anything else in the world. Amen. 
Jesus said to his disciples, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Thank you for listening and God bless you all.